we are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my and allies your friendly russian is here this is weed the aliens podcast i'm your host sasha kapustina thank you for tuning in first of all some housekeeping i know there are some new people joining it's exciting welcome a uh, small schedule adjustment in the next few weeks there will only be one episode per week so Tune in every Monday. We will go back to two episodes per week soon. I will keep you posted. This week, though, I will be releasing another episode of Ask Your Friendly Russian. This episode will be about poisonings of the opposition in Russia. And yes, I said poisonings because there were many in the last 20 years. And the most recent one you may have heard about Uh, in the news, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. So if you want to hear about possibly weapons of mass destruction, possibly being used in Russia, tune in on Thursday to this podcast feed or follow us on YouTube and watch the video version. Last but not least, in the housekeeping department, I want to reach out to you and remind you that you can nominate the guests. Let me know who I should talk to from your country, your region, uh, wherever you're from in the world. I want to meet your people here in the States. I want you to be proud of them. I want all of us aliens to be proud of each other because there's so many amazing people who come here and make America great with their grit and hard work every day and this podcast is the place to tell their stories so there's a form on the website or you can message me on facebook or on instagram or email me and tell me who i should talk to okay that's it for the housekeeping and now to this week's episode today on the podcast i talked to daniel zaharevich Daniil is from Belarus. You may have caught my video about the protests after the election over there. It's a big story unfolding in Europe that will likely have an effect on the political map of the world. If you haven't watched this video or listened to that episode, you may want to check it out for the context. I'm not going to get deep into it uh, here right now. I just want to give you a quick update. So. There was a presidential election, and the current president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, most likely uh, got voted out. Officially, he won 80% of the vote, but this number itself, 80%, seems very unrealistic. And the mass protests all over the country that broke out after this announcement seem to point to it being a lie. So the protests have been continuing for 37 days now, and so has the brutal reaction of the authorities who are detaining random peaceful protesters. 
torturing, beating them up. There are thousands of images and videos of those arrests. Many of the protesters are women. And those scenes look like scenes from the show Handmaid's Tale. Men in face masks in unidentified uniforms just drag them into unidentified vans and drive them off. The presumed president-elect Tikhanovskaya is still in exile. The opposition tried to form a coordination committee to start working towards the transition of power, but the authorities arrested most of them. And in fact, a member of that committee, Svetlana Alexievich, who is a Nobel Prize-winning writer, was also about to be arrested. And the only reason she's not is that a bunch of ambassadors of several European countries came over to her apartment and decided to keep a watch not to allow her arrest. The world is neither recognizing the results of the election nor providing support to the opposition because nobody's really ready to face off with Russia. That is the other big player in this. And so the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, went to Russia today to meet with President Putin. And he got assurance of support along with $1.5 billion loan to support the collapsing economy. So with all of this unfolding, I wanted to talk to someone who is from there to give a personal perspective on the events. So I found Daniil, a fisherman from Massachusetts who grew up in Minsk. I reached out to him on Facebook and he was shy and wasn't sure if he was kicking ass enough. But the way I see it, if the person can confidently say that they are happy, they're absolutely kicking ass. And so here's my chat with Daniel. I came in the US in 2010. July 2010, and I came from Minsk, Belarus. Oh, wow. It's your 10-year anniversary. Congratulations. This year, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, mine is... Mine was... Oh, my God. Mine was two days ago. I just realized... Congratulations, Sasha. Wow. <laughs> we are of the same year as immigrants. Do you feel American? Um, yeah, I do. I feel... Um, like, I'm lucky because uh, I can feel American and I can feel Belarusian and I can be from Europe and I can be from here. So it's, it's kind of a cool situation because, you know, you're a person of, a, of the world. <laughs> That's cool that you, you can say that and that you feel all of those things. I'm still figuring out where I'm at. Um, when you say you feel American, what do you feel? What do you put in that? What was that for you? Um, first, I feel like I am one of the immigrants who came here in search of success and happiness, and I am still here and feel successful and happy. So I guess this is American. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that counts. That that totally counts. <laughs> so tell me, Let's go, uh, you know, to the beginning of the story. What was your life like back home, back in Belarus? I basically left Belarus right after high school. 
I did not want to be in a country government of which told me to sign up for some student unions to be able to get into school. I felt like this tunnel back into USSR system is not for me. So I really was looking for any way to just escape. And um, I did. I learned Polish language and moved to Poland and started studying in Europe. Wow. Tell me a little more about that part where the country was trying to turn back into the Soviet Union, because being from Moscow and being your, you know, neighbor right there, and it's like, what, a 12 hour train ride or something? Oh, not yes. even. It could be not seven. even. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really know much about mm -hmm. what life was like there or is like there. I knew it's a it's a dictatorship ish. It's it's a full uh, it's a dictatorship in all 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 sense of this world. And um, see, I didn't realize that because like my friends would go to Minsk and be like, "Oh, it's so cool! It's so fun! It's so clean! It's so uh, people are so nice." Nobody would ever mentioned any dark things about what was going on there. So, tell yeah. me what it was like for you. Well, you know, um, first, I do have uh, family in Moscow. I have a lot of friends who move there to work and live. And um, yeah, of course, we see people coming um, to Minsk, um, which is really great, uh, beautiful city, really clean with really nice people with all the signs of prosperous capitalistic country you know which is you would have all the clubs and expensive cars and all kinds of stores and boutiques and it all looks like um, life is beautiful to be honest with you it's hard to explain for anybody especially from post-soviet countries um, that it's really impossible to live there and everybody wants to leave because if you take freedom from people and give them food and I don't know clean streets I don't think you can expect people to be happy and as my mom always said to to those kind of comments about Belarus being clean you know jail is also clean and they feed you twice a day but it's still a jail so I do understand the the discomfort of not having the freedom for me that was yeah probably the main reason I didn't go back to Russia at some point. Uh -huh. uh, even though I never wanted to leave Russia, I, I felt strongly that I am Russian and I want to live there and never wanted to become an immigrant. I never, never wanted to leave. But there came a point where I realized that I cannot do there what I want to do. And I don't know if I can do it elsewhere either, but I definitely can't make a life that I want there. Mm -hmm. So, and that had to do with the lack of freedom, specifically freedom of expression, because I'm in film industry and I'm generally very, you know, politically aware and I want to be involved with, you know, activism and those things. And in Russia, if you want to be doing that, you have to be ready to go to jail or die or be poisoned like Alexei Navalny right now. And I just never was that kind of person. I, I, at some point I realized, okay, I don't have that courage you understand me completely then and that's absolutely the reason that it's hard to explain for a lot of people who says that yeah well you you're okay you have a job and, and an apartment and you can live yeah that's true but um 
And I am sure that a lot of people are happy with what they have. But um, And I'm sure there are people who support the government, too. They do. Yeah, they do exist. And of course, there will always be people to, who support. Reasons could be different, of course, but there always will be people to support that kind of um, system. But not being able to express yourself in any way, uh, whether it's what you think, what you write, um, what your sexuality is, who are your parents, what is your background, um, that's still kind of a, an issue in uh, Belarus and people will judge you for so many things. Um, and also more of a economic freedom when uh, a lot of people want to make something out of their lives. They want to create a business. They want to express themselves in art uh, like you. And government even can let you do it. If you want to become a successful, I don't know, builder, you can do it and they will let you do it. And they will let you develop your business in uh, something, you know, more successful. And then they will take it and put you in jail and take everything from your family and you won't be able to do anything. So that constant fear and understanding that we're just uh, somebody's uh, servants was definitely not for me, but definitely not for a lot of people. I feel so much sadness in you. Um, lately, it's been very difficult for all of us Belarusians, um, that uh, absolute mix of emotions and feelings uh, in everybody. Because first of all, um, the amount of courage that your own people as a nation give you right now is tremendous. Belarusian people have never been this united. I've been very much inspired by seeing what was going on there. Yeah, and at the same time, it's um, an extreme fear, um, anxiety, and panic. In uh, and again, I don't want to sound like I am suffering so much just because I'm having a comfortable life uh, far away from all the squares and um, streets and jails and uh, torture rooms and. Yeah, I understand. I remember when, I don't know if you remember in 2011-12, there was uprising in Moscow. Yes. And I was already here and I was glued to Facebook for weeks. Uh -huh. And I didn't know what to do because I, I didn't have it in me to just, you know, throw everything away here and just go and be there. And I couldn't do anything from here other than repost and, you know, donate what I can. And exactly just keep talking to people and telling people about it. And it all, I don't want to say that it all was for nothing, but really the protest didn't achieve what it was aiming at. And that was the most devastating part. Yeah. Um, and then you have to realize what, what follows, how people's hopes will, be, will shatter. And I definitely understand that you can relate. And unfortunately, <laughs> from our part of the world, from where you and I are from, that kind of situation are happening for centuries. Yeah. Well, let's go back to your story a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you are your, what, 17, 18 year old self. You knew you had to get out, mm -hmm. right? That was the feeling. And yeah. what was your aspiration? Why did you feel that staying in Belarus would prevent you from achieving what? What, what, is, what was it that you felt was stifling you most? To be honest with you, and I wanted to be honest with you, it's uh, there was not a particular plan or ambition back then when I was 18 years old, finishing high school. Um, I was, as everybody, just thinking in which school I can get in 
set my mind on um, studying tourism or um, international relationship. There were a few schools that uh, offered that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I realized that Belarusian student or wannabe student supposed to sign up for government organization which is called uh, Belarusian Patriotic Union of Youth. Our parents would call it Kamsamol, which, you know, it was just so lame. How can, what are we back to USSR? What are we going to like listen to somebody's propaganda and, and, and doing what they say? I don't want to live in a country like that. I mean, we're in a modern world, you know, that time the internet was um, basically just starting for Belarus. We were all knowing what's going on in the world. And the government telling me that I'm supposed to be in some uh, youth organization, just to be able to pass exams and get into school. Mm -hmm. That immediately put me off and I really did not want to do it. So you went to, you ended up going to college in Poland. In Poland. And then how did you make your way to the US? I ended up being in Poland. I learned Polish language is pretty close to Belarusian in uh, vocabulary and pronunciation. I did two sem semesters and in the summer I came back home. I had this feeling after two semesters that I don't really want to become Polish. Hmm. If you want to stay there, you kind of like have to think like Polish. You have to be in the whole system. You know, it's like everything started to feel like, well, I don't know if it's real, if, I, if that's what I want to do. Hmm. So there was that really elite school in Minsk, and it was shut down uh, by a government, by Alexander Lukashenko, oh, because wow. it had, you know, that school had professors from around the world, it had, you know, every language you could possibly think of, uh, you know. So it was definitely problematic school. He didn't need it in, in the country. So he closed it, and the school was closed for a whole year. But then a year later, it was... Um, reopened in Vilnius, Lithuania, which is a neighboring country. And Vilnius is a capital, which is like 60 miles away from Minsk. But it's already European Union. So you need all the visas, have to stay in the line through the border, all, all that. Um, so I came back home from Poland for the summer. I started working immediately in construction just to make money, to have some. Um, and I was thinking that I don't really want to come back to Poland. I want to try that school. I thought it's my own it's uh, it's kind of against government, which it wasn't really, it, but just by default, it was um, seen as a, another tool against the dictatorship, you know. Uh, it was very attractive to me. And I spent four years in Vilnius, and I got my bachelor's degree there. And so the degree was in tourism? Yeah. So then when did America come into the picture? Like America came in the picture as, uh, for many people, in universities around the world as a work and travel program. Oh, okay. Which is a program that allows you to come to United States, work and travel. What was your gig? I was in the hotel and restaurants. What did you do in the hotel? I was cleaning rooms and sitting on the front desk taking reservations from people. And I was busboying in the restaurants. And what was your first impression of America? I flew in New York. Oh. JFK at night taking a subway. It's a long ride from JFK to town on subway. It's like two hours. No, an hour, but the full hour. Okay. But, you know, when you see subway in New York at night from JFK going through Queens, you don't see anything that you've seen in the movies, you know? No. Like, it's not 
pretty. Yeah. It's not clean. It's not welcoming. It's very scary and weird. So that was the first impression. I was like, why? I thought I'm going to some, you know, the success of the world, the, the biggest, um, you know, <laughs> richest country. And so immediately was like, wow, that's, this is brutal. This is very interesting. I would never expect that. <laughs> And then again, Times Square, immediately seeing all the lights, seeing all the people. That's when you realize immediately, oh, wait, it is like in the movies. It's exactly like in the movies. <laughs> Had some drinks in an Irish pub right there in like 42nd or something. Like, you know, kind of grungiest and ugliest dive bar, you know, you could find. That's where I kind of felt, okay, I'm here. That's it. I am here. That's where you landed. Yeah. And immediately felt, you know, I studied abroad, but it's been always, the feeling was kind of, of a, this is somewhere behind the woods, like behind that river, somewhere, like not far. It's like right there. Mm -hmm. Belarus is right around there. But when you come on a plane and come to New York, you immediately realize that, no, no, that's really far. Yeah. It feels very far immediately. It's not Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah. So next morning we got on the bus and went to Provincetown, this very old artist community on the very tip of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So it's out there in a very skinny peninsula out in the Atlantic Ocean, which became home to LGBTQ community and um, a lot of summer tourists. Beautiful seaside, very cute, tiny town, thousands and thousands of people on the street, like in a busy mall. So that was my first introduction. First introduction. So when did the idea to move to the U.S. come to you? Yeah, so that summer I spent here and I finally, you know, I started speaking a little better English mm -hmm. um, and I worked um, as Americans do. <laughs> which means every day, two jobs, trying to make the most out of it, you know, uh, at the same time, trying to find time to go to the beach and, you know, have a, have a drink and party. So yeah, that was a, like a very intense, beautiful experience. But I decided to go back and finish studies because I had the last year, mm -hmm. my parents, you know, even though I studied for free in Lithuania, they would still help me. So I kind of felt like I owe them this, you know. The degree. The degree, yeah. So I came back and I did finish studies. Um, to be honest with you, Sasha, you know, my story is not something um, like I saw in your a couple episodes of, of your podcast when people are doctors and they, they had this ambition in their life and they, they followed their dream. Me, um, I didn't have that much ambition. And um, my only motivation, to be honest with you, was I did not want to come back to Belarus. I didn't see any opportunities for me there. It was still very much a um, dark place with no business or a business that you know only exists because the government allows it to. I just didn't want to come back there. And I had an opportunity. And I thought, okay, if I get reasons to go to the States, I go there. If not, I'll just go to Poland. Um, I'll be fine. And I did get a visa. Mm -hmm. I did have job offer from my previous owner here in Provincetown. So I thought, I'm just going to try. You know, I think it's a totally valid way. I, I came out to study originally. I'm still in search of what, I'm, what I am and, mm -hmm. what I, and I 
what I want to do. And that was actually one of the reasons I, I started this podcast is to talk to people who are on that same path and see what they did and how they figured out where they're at. And the reason I wanted to talk to you is that you say confidently that you are happy. <sighs> As a Russian person, I am perplexed <laughs> <laughs> by anybody who can state that mm -hmm. confidently. And that's why I think that you must be kicking ass in some way, <laughs> because I know how much goes into that for a so post-Soviet child to say that. Uh -huh. True. Thank you very much. So I know there's something there. And even though you're saying, oh, you don't have that story of ambition driving you, something was driving you. I think it is no less valid of a desire to just be a free person and search. Absolutely, completely agree with you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, so what happened? So you you got a you got a, this job offer. You got to the states. To, you came back to Provincetown. And so, what was the plan? What did you want to do there? I wanted to find a place in some big hotel and start there. You know, kind of felt like I might want to pursue this tourism idea and. I started, of course, immediately realized that I don't have that many options. My friend worked in a moving company in New York, a um, famous movie company, Moishes, uh, in Brooklyn. How is it famous? For New Yorkers, it is. It's just one of the biggest, oldest companies. Oh, um, okay. But it's also famous because it's it's so big and they don't care about their employees that much. I don't know if you're familiar, a uh, moving job is like one of those like super hard uh I can like really 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 hard like i didn't understand that i came well yeah we're gonna pack boxes it's heavy lifting it's carrying a lot of stuff but the speed you supposed to do it with is uh, it's like well it's impossible to comprehend it person can move so fast for so long and every day of the week so when i came from the first apartment uh, it was two bedroom apartment in which like what I thought was people just woke up, brushed their teeth and left. That's probably what they did. Like blankets on the bed, their pajamas and coffee cup in the kitchen is still like warm. And we had to pack this whole apartment, put it into trucks and move it upstate because of course they bought a house upstate here. I like how it left worse. Well, gentrification <laughs> was happening there then. So when I saw it, I was like, wow, how many days is going to take us? On which my uh, foreman was like, yalla, yalla, come on, quick, 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 quick. Why are you standing? I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I realized that we packed that whole apartment, packed it all in two trucks, went upstate New York and unloaded it there in one day. Uh, I was ready to just die right then, but <laughs> next day you go to work and do it all over again. That was my life for a while. But every day I was trying to look for something else and send out resumes and uh, just like be actively looking. It took me some time um, going like construction work and uh, moving, some cleaning. And at some point I found a restaurant job. Because again, like when you don't have any experience, 
it's really hard and for them working for like two summers up in on the cape cod and, and like tourism uh tourist town for new yorker it's not an experience what are you what are you doing you what are you gonna tell me your kitchen closes at 10 people in new york don't even start thinking if they're hungry yet at 10 p.m they don't even know if they're gonna eat tonight yet you know um so I found a job in a famous Maribanna restaurant in New York. Oh, we had one in LA too yeah. for a little bit. So <laughs> I came there and a um, manager, very nice woman, said, okay, where did you work? Here, here, here. She said, okay, well, not much. I understand. Um, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> I said, okay. And it was Thursday. It was uh, January 27th, which is my birthday. That's why I remember. But I said, yeah, please. Uh, and, you know, January in New York, it's a very busy restaurant time. Oh. People are in the city. It's cold. It's dark. Mm -hmm. They don't go to, like, Ocean. They don't go to Hamptons. They stay. And it's a lot of parties. You know, winter is busy. Uh, I didn't understand what busy is. <laughs> I literally um, came to work and... I saw a full restaurant and somebody yelling at me immediately and mm -hmm. showing me what to do. Um, a busboy. Busboy is really, I realized that it's a position in a restaurant that is the lowest. It's like you have no respect from anybody. It's not waiter thinks you're nothing and uses your labor just as, you know, basically enslaving you. And uh, chef thinks you're the lowest. You, you don't know anything. You can't be in the kitchen to grab wrong fork. You will be yelled at. Um, dishwasher is a much more respectful position in a restaurant than than busboy. And and of course the clients they you know they don't see you. If you're doing a great job, they don't see you. Mm -hmm. But when you really fuck up, then when they see you. So yeah, I started working in the restaurant and I was there for almost. Two years. Wow. Busboy for two years. No, no, no. Um, I was like, how did you survive that? That's brutal. Yeah, I, st I started um, as a busboy. Um, eight months later, I received my papers. Mm. I become a lawful permanent resident. That's huge. Huge. So I got papers and I immediately went to the manager and said I quit. And they said, Daniel, please, you can leave. We need you. You're an important part of the team. I said, no, no, no. I started getting tired of the job and I don't perform my best. I think it's better for the establishment if I leave. <laughs> uh, on which she said, you need to become a waiter. We really will use your help. And I said, okay, I will try. If I don't like it, I leave. If you don't like it, I leave. So let's do it. And I stayed again for another 10 months and making big money for for me back then. And Well, in New York, you can make pretty decent money as, as a waiter. Oh, my God. In, in Marivana, especially. Oh, my God. Sasha. Tell me about it. Oh. Marivana. I don't know. That's so funny because people are going to hear. Some people are going to hear, right? And listen to. Hopefully some people will listen. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the idea. <laughs> oh well, Marivana in New York is a restaurant owned by a big Russian holding, Ginza Project. 
Um, so it's unlike many other Russian restaurants in New York, it's not Russian Americans who created this nostalgic place of Russia um, or Soviet Union rather. It's Moscow money, big money that has a lot of really good restaurants around the world said that we're going to make a really busy, big, expensive place here and it will make money. You're from Moscow. You know how business operates there. So mm-hmm. I felt like, and again, being um, in America for like over half a year, I realized that there are certain human rights, first of all, that... <laughs> They're present in a workplace. Also, you can have an expectations from your employer. Mm-hmm. You get paid, you are not, you know, you work your shift and you're just not doing anything for free or, or being, uh, I don't know, harassed by anything. Um, well, restaurants in New York is basically pure harassment. You know, it's, it's like, I think it's more of a, like this masochistic kind of uh, job, you know? Endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of want to, you got to be somebody who just, I don't know, enjoys the putting yourself to the edge and like just pushing, pushing, pushing. But that's how you make money. So in Marivana, it's the place that had, the exceed capacity was just the normal norm. It was just always more people than there were supposed to be in that restaurant. It was that popular. It was so popular. Where was it? It's on 20th between Park and Broadway. Oh, it's in Manhattan. Yeah, it's uh, it's not just Manhattan. It's uh, between Chelsea and Gramercy. It's a small part of Manhattan with a really big concentration of high-end restaurants. Marivana was full of Wall Street boys, um, Russian models, oligarchs. And a lot of celebrities. Every day, every night was somebody that people knew. Um, and some celebrities were just regulars there too. You know, Mickey Rourke. He likes Russian food, apparently. Yeah, and he had Russian girlfriend at the time, I think. Or still ah, had. Ah, yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, hockey players, um, models, again. It's just, you know, just the center. of. Uh, and again, in lunchtime, it was more about the food. But nighttime, it was entertainment view it i mean a lot of food so much booze chaotic dance parties i don't know it was just insanity all every night um but people were spending money and you know for a waiter it's just the best thing marivana is a really cool concept of a restaurant it's um, basically um communal flat you know quartiere, and you had to have a key to get in a restaurant or be invited by somebody who has a key. Oh, they had that in, in Moscow to one of those like early night. It was Petrovich where you had to have a key to get in. Mm-hmm. So Marivana was one of those restaurants and the, the cat would walk around. You would you like the feeling of being in somebody's apartment, but also like being in somebody's, um, I, would, I used to say it's like this aristocratic grandmother who was uh, a duchess of some something, something, but everything was taken from her by Soviets, and she had to share this huge flat with a bunch of workers and, and you know, trunks. So there would be a big, big chandelier and, like, peeling wallpapers off the school. Design of this place was amazing. I, I really, like, the whole concept and the execution of that was so beautiful. Uh, food was really, or is, I think, is, like, really homemade style, but, like, 
quality was good. And again, like you had so many people saying, that's not how my grandmother makes it. Or that's not real Olivier or something. And I'm like, the country of like half of the world, do you think everybody was making your grandmother's Olivier or what? <laughs> so I was like proud of the food and uh, it was kind of a Soviet, you know, um, heritage. So I knew what it is. And uh, it was very kind of like interesting for me to to, to explain it to, to guests, especially Americans. Um, mm-hmm. It's fun. Yeah. But again, Americans, you know, with Americans, it was for me as a waiter. And I'm going to try and it's the stereotypes I'm trying to talk about. But they're funny stereotypes as Americans who come to a restaurant for dinner in high dining um, settings, which marijuana is claimed as high dining, but there's not so much etiquette there at the table. No, especially from um, people from you know, post-Soviet republics, no. Mm-hmm. It's a different style of high dining. Exactly. So for American, there is a certain, um, you know, system. You come, you order an appetizer and you or a couple appetizers. You order a main course, you order dessert, a glass of wine with dinner, a drink before and a digestive later. That's pretty much the, you know, the extent. The order, yeah. But as you, Sash, know, there's no system for Russian dining <laughs> the act of dining is just the make an impression so every time people come to dinner you have to have everything on the table already so uh, herring under the fur coat a marinated mushroom skewered pork fat um you know like uh, beet salads everything is supposed to be there they come of course they like to drink some vodka of course there is something uh for the kids uh they want to sit there it's not to eat, it's to be there. It's uh, not how much food you want to consume, it's about how much food you want to put on the table. So uh, from a waiter's perspective, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. Having your order and controlling the table a little bit, that what makes it work, because you're supposed to understand how quickly they're going to eat or how much and uh, coordinate everything with the kitchen and your bartender and that that's like a teamwork you know mm-hmm. but russian people don't understand that person they, they just refuse to understand even people who live here but people who come from moscow and st Petersburg, they don't know so the regular situation would be you know coming to uh, a table of like six people and having two huge men with four beautiful real russian models and me, all beard, very skinny, hungry, constantly young waiter who comes and says, good evening, everybody, tonight on the menu. They would look at me and say, what fucking menu? What's good? And you would have to explain. But at some point you understand that, oh, that's how it's going to be. Okay. And you start. Oh, tonight we just uh, we just received the champagne of um, um, this and that. And I'm sure ladies would appreciate it. Bring it. And we have an octopus salad. We have tonight is the oysters from the West Coast with a black caviar from a Caspian Sea. And this, 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 I'm pretty sure we will have to have an, we would have to give it a taste. This is something that you would not come across. All right, bring it. And that's how you do it. <laughs> and then you look at these two big Russian men with a big voice and say, and you, what? 
carafe of vodka and some pork fat. And they're like, yeah. So eventually they became, become your biggest fans. Uh, they say, Dania, please come to um, St. Petersburg. I will bring you every, everywhere. You will be my guest. Oh. <laughs> In the meantime, you'd call your boss boy and say, bring water. All kinds. Just count bottles. Cappuccino for everybody. Uh, what else? Dessert? Everybody. Just bring it, bring it, bring it. That's what it was for me. You're working in a Maribana and trying to make as much as you can because, you know, you understand your people and you kind of want to show them a the good time, help them to have a good time, but also make money. Yeah. Looks like you figured it out. Well, I had good mentors there too. And uh, it was it was interesting. It's funny that it was Russian restaurant, but that's where I improved my um, language a lot, especially because you have to be quick and you have to be quick in general. Uh, so there was a lot of learning there. And living in New York, it was, you know, trying to survive basically, and uh, but also taking every possible moment to, to enjoy the city and like what was the best thing about being in New York? New York is one it's one of a kind, right? That's where you go. It's like where the opportunities are. That's when you can make something out of your life. And for me, that was the idea. That's why I go to New York. I didn't have, um, you know, any kind of goals back then. Like, that's why I need this city. You know, like some people, uh, I understand. In New York, if you are in any kind of art industry, you got to be there. If you're in finance, you got to be there. You're, you you want to achieve some heights in your career in those particular industries, You, I think you have to be there. Like It's like filmmaking being in LA, you know, but at the same time, filmmaking being in, like independent filmmaking being in New York. I didn't have to be there. I was a waiter in a restaurant. So spending time two years in New York, you know, loving the city, loving the vibe, um, I just couldn't explain myself to myself why why do I have to be in this city you know I still have to take the subway and and be in this dirty stinky place most of the time I when you live in New York also you don't go to MoMA every weekend you you don't go to opera um, you don't see plays or even you know you don't go to Soho to shop for you know it's not for you this stuff is for tourists, basically, you know? Like, yeah, of course, we, we see what new what comes up, but most of the New Yorkers, you know, you got to go to Williamsburg to uh, to some cute little movie theater in, like, one night after work, you know? You can go eat amazing ethnic food, and I mean any kind of ethnic food, like southwestern Bangkok, or you want to have, I don't know, maybe Patagonian tonight, you know? Like, there's such a huge... <laughs> variety of, of food and it's all so good i just realized that i'm not enjoying my life here it's not i'm not living it fully and i didn't have anything against new york again as i said like i understand people who uh, follow their career and also people who get addicted to this um it's easy to get addicted to new york and not realizing yeah. that it eats you after a while you know and some people don't they that's what moves them that's the drive you know mm -hmm. uh, i also work in a, i had a lot of friends from you know russia and belarus and ukraine and um, a lot of people had this very interesting like um opinion about new york is just like well this is new york we got you gotta make it here you know and i, I was looking mm -hmm. at them like thinking you spent half of your life in the subway and go to a russian store in the weekend to to eat your like you know yeah, yeah thank you <laughs> like 
why do you have to be here what's like your benefit out of it just this status thing or you can show on facebook to your friends back in chelyabinsk that you are here and you see all these build buildings you know i'm not accusing anybody but i'm just saying that that was not for me right and so what did you decide for yourself next at some point i went back home to belarus um, i had a backpack and a huge suitcase full of presents i went home spent a lot of time in um, minsk and i got together with this former classmate from the university and uh, she's in filmmaking and she studied she lived in uh, slovenia back then i went to visit some friends in europe and then i went to see her in slovenia and we spent um, like 10 days there i think and i had to go back so long distance relationship and um, I'm back in New York. I started back in the restaurant. Um, I didn't know what I want to do, but it was it was June, I think. And the summer was already there, but it was not yet that crazy, extremely hot, stinky, humid uh, New York summer, which is it, it, it's it's um, it can break people. Uh, and I, it was approaching and I was not interested. I knew that I don't want to see it anymore. And I knew how good it is in Provincetown in the summer you know so all i did is just escaped i went and realized that i just want to be by the sea and you know working a couple of jobs and making money um so i went so you went to the sea i went to the sea and again you know after new york i already spoke better english i was a little more confident in this country in general you know so i came in the time when people start getting ready for a season and then Provincetown is such a place, um, it's uh, absolutely insane amount of people for such a uh, little town. To make give you an idea, it's a place where there is about 3,000 year-round citi uh, citizens, and it goes up to 60,000 in the summer. And in the high season, um, like holidays, like 4th of July and Memorial Day weekend, Carnival, uh, which is a uh, gay pride parade, here um it goes up to hundred thousand people in town you know oh my god that's crazy where do they live it's the house on the house it's all like kind of condo with the condo inside of the condo it's it's crazy and it's not healthy it's uh you know there's water supply issues and you know sewer and everything i came in the time when people start getting ready for a season and i started working um slowly um love faded and um i broke person's heart um and i couldn't i wasn't able to do it um to continue doing it what we were doing but mm -hmm. i definitely should have done it a different way um i mean and the thing a different way and this is my um big regret in life <clears throat> um and person is such a great person that we um, became friends eventually well and... then you didn't do it that badly then uh mm -hmm. I don't know. She found it in her to forgive you. Well, person has a huge heart, I guess. Um, so, anyhow, it's about me, right? Not somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided to stay in Provincetown. Yeah, I was stay. That's it. I didn't want to. Uh, well, not right away. No, sorry. When I came back, I started working again. Like I don't have um, a clear plan or plan in general, and I just um, uh, meet people started you know first of all started working in a restaurant in Provincetown after working in restaurants in New York you think like what are you even doing why are you complaining like this is nothing but then you realize well it's 
heart in a little different way. Uh, your people come to eat because they just, you know, they have to have dinner or they have to have a business meeting. I don't know. When you're on a vacation, when one is on a vacation, it's a little different. It's supposed to be an event of some sort. So you go for it, to eat, you are enjoying yourself, right? So for some reason in America, and I'm saying it like, with complete confidence. I think something clicks in people's minds as soon as they enter the restaurant. <laughs> they become these unbearable, needy, rude monsters. Um, there's two, I, I figured, well, while I was working, I figured that there's two ways. I, I, I could explain it to myself in two ways. So it looks like a person either has the first meal of his life. Like, they don't know anything. They don't know what they want, how they want it how to talk to a waiter, how to behave at the table. They just are absolute uh, morons. Or it might seem like it's their last meal of their life and everything's supposed to be absolutely perfect. Like in a way that they don't even know, but whatever you do is already wrong. They think that this is not the way it's supposed to be done. So, and how can you win with this? All you can do is just stay extremely polite, like like cheesy, poli overly polite, like you are overacting, like you're just so sweet. Because then they have no possible um, way to complain about you. Because what did you do wrong? You just were polite. Yeah, extremely polite. Well, sorry. But, you know. And eventually they become your friends. They love you so much. You know how to win them. I guess. Yeah. Also, I realized it could be a place of work. If you're proud of the food, proud of the team, you know, you're taking pride in what you do. You know, but a lot of places, tourist places, you know, when you serve fried food with, you know, French fries and glass of coke i can't take pride in this so i just slowly i i realized like I, I just i can't do it anymore you know it's like i felt like humiliating myself and also somehow people can be very rude and hearing your accent they can assume things and tell me more about that you know being a country of immigrants this is a very xenophobic country or can be very xenophobic country especially in uh, rural areas or less populated areas uh, so to be honest with you you know cape cod is is, is a place of white rich people uh, this town particular white rich man uh, mm -hmm. which is an, the most entitled um, group of population in this country i think you know mm -hmm. people who think that they are better than anybody else they have more money than anybody else more privilege than anybody else and opportunities um, and they don't realize or think that they're that mm -hmm. so it's very difficult to deal with this how did it manifest like what happened well you know people could assume where you're from like they would be you're russian which is true i do speak russian but I would be happy to explain to you or tell you, you know, where I'm from. And if you just say, or at least ask me, do I sense Russian accent? Is this Russian accent? Mm. But don't tell me, you know, that I'm Bulgarian or I am whatever, French. It's just, it's just rude to talk to a person like this. Right. Somehow when uh, people realize that you're not from here or like you're new to this country, they have this... Uh, sense of entitlement to telling you that um, that I have a better life here. Mm. You know, they could tell me, oh, well, of course it's not where you're from, right? You probably don't have stuff like this. Or, you know, 
ask me what I do for a living and be like, did you go to school or you or did you finish school or um, you, you probably have to go to college later because, you know, waiter is not forever. And I don't understand why you would, you know, tell, tell a person. And of course, uh, you know, to a young person, some older person that wants to give some advice, but um, that sounds very entitled to me. And I don't feel like I, you know, at this point, I would tolerate something like this. But when you're in a restaurant, and you're in a position when you're supposed to be very polite all the time, and take that, take that from people, and I just didn't feel like it, you know, Mm. for example, when I got my citizenship. Oh, that was, that's what I was gonna ask you actually next. So you are a citizen, I'm not a citizen yet. No, yeah, no. So tell me about it. How it go? How did it go? Um, so getting citizenship is a very exciting thing um, for me because I am able to vote mm-hmm. um, and I will be able to vote in the next election and try to vote this person out of there. Yes. Thank you. Everybody who hasn't registered yet I, in every interview that I do now, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the election comes up. And so I do a, a little plug for election. If you have not ordered your mail-in <laughs> ballot yet please do now yeah. okay back to your story thank you <laughs> i approve this message <laughs> <laughs> um, for people who don't know that being an immigrant in this country um, and dealing with immigration services is a very scary thing it's uh, somehow is very intimidating and i understand that uh, you know uh, law forces are never nice they're supposed to control the situation but somehow here in this country it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong immediately any correspondence i had with the immigration services before my um, citizenship sounded like you must appear on certain dates certain times in case of failure to appear um, that language is so strong and aggressive that you know makes you feel scared as soon as you pass your interview they write you a letter of Thank you so very much, Mr. Daniel Zakharyevich, to being interested in becoming a citizen of this beautiful country of opportunities, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they call you and asking and confirming if you'd receive your papers. Um, everything is so nice and beautiful. And you realize like, oh, I'm in. I'm in the club now all of a sudden. You know, I'm like a better person. I don't like it. Again, it's not my biggest concern. It's just very interesting to see such a big change just immediately. Yeah. You know? Well, I haven't gotten my citizenship yet, but I definitely remember the transition from, you know, switching visas and having to constantly deal with this and that and extending and never being sure if you're going to be let in in the country. And then staying, not being able to work for some period of time in my case. And But even still, to this day, I avoid going to protest, for example, because I know that if I am arrested and I get that on my record, that can prevent me from getting citizenship. So there's always that limitation there until you become a citizen. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you feel on the day when you got, when was that, by the way? Very recently. Um, okay, so it's fresh. Tell very me. fresh. Honestly, I was scared to do the interview just because, of course, they always try to intimidate you. What do you mean? Well, immigration officers, as you know, uh, have, they're very well trained and um, they need to find if whatever you say is true mm-hmm. and which it was. But you still feel um, scared just because the way usually 
immigration officer talk to you. I remember it clearly getting visa and people would, uh, consul would look in the computer and asking you simple questions of where were you born, what's your name, and then all of a sudden asking you how long did you spend in the U.S. Uh, between months of June and August. And immediately piercing you with his eyes and looking at you trying to find out are you honest enough. And, you know, that's their job, they're trained to do it. That's what I felt going there. That's how I'm going to feel. I'm scared. I'm scared. But, I mean, not really scared, but I was seriously worried if I won't, like, mess the words up or if, if, if they're going to ask me something else again. Um, mm. But I was invited by a very nice person. Um, we came into the room where I've been asked uh, to read um, a sentence I've been asked to write a sentence. Uh, I was asked six questions um, from the civic test, which I got right. And then the person said, okay, now we move into easy part. <laughs> What's the easy part? <laughs> easy part was just asking me uh, questions from my application. Funny questions. One of which is, have you or are you registered in communist party oh yeah that one i love those yeah well there they are on all the visa applications have you ever been a member of a communist you or any member of your family yeah been a member of communist party to which i usually answer i mean i answer no because i was never a member of communist party but my grandmother was mm -hmm. but you would say no and not getting into there because why would people know that there's, I mean, how can you explain to a person that... Um, Everybody was. Yeah, and also, you, don't you think, officer, that there are way bigger problems to worry about in this country than somebody being a communist? And also, we <laughs> kind of all learned that it doesn't work. Like, the whole world <laughs> learned that it doesn't work. Why are you so panically scared of that? I, I well, funny. well, they are panically scared of communists. But I've had, I don't know if you had this experience. It's funny that the whole communist thing came up. Because when I first got here... Less these days, but when I first got here, maybe because I had stronger accent and people recognized me as Russian more. Um, and these days just it doesn't come up as much. Mm -hmm. But um, I got communist jokes all the time. Like people would make a communist joke at me mm -hmm. and I would be like, that ended before I became conscious. Mm -hmm. Like I have nothing to do with that. My dad taught me that communists are unhandshakable. They have no affiliation whatsoever. I don't know what you're talking about. But people here assume that we all are somewhat communist yeah. or whatever, somehow affiliated. Yeah, I, I don't know. Somehow, I and especially with an older uh, part of the population in this country. Yeah, for sure. People ask and are genuinely um, like suspicious um, mm. and maybe a little bit threatened i don't know but um it feels like the, the the that evil of communism is just so engraved in their mentality i don't know it's it's so weird like well yeah go like you know i understand that the cold war happened nuclear threat was real the uh, um yeah you know, but you know this country did so much of the same stuff in other parts of the world and um you know like for a thinking person as i like to think of myself I think that these two nations, Russians and Americans, are very, very much alike. Just because, you know, it's, they're both huge. They're both um, kind of have this imperialistic way of thinking, you know, like yeah. we're, we're better, we're bigger, we're, you know. 
stronger and that's why scarier. yeah and but, we're gonna take everything but what i think and i like asked my parents once i said you weren't scared of americans right you were like kind of all the whole thing of communism was like they don't know better they are just exploited by capitalistic evil the capitalism was mm -hmm. evil you know mm -hmm. yeah but nobody and would say we will help them we will teach americans but here it was somehow red like, scare plague is gonna come and kill you all and your kids you know like this you know well because i think the the biggest the scariest part for americans is when their property is taken away mm -hmm. and the idea that in communism there is no private property that is right there like the most terrifying thing it's not that the the Russians or whatever communists are going to come and take your children away. It's they're going to take your house away. Mm -hmm. Well, true, as you say, as I mean, as you know, I mean, thank you. You, you that's very interesting. I agree with you because, uh, you know, that first um, one of the first I um, one of the biggest reasons of um, American fighting for their independence from British was because British soldiers had a right to live in american houses mm. that was literally in the constitution mm. so being so scared of um uh, losing your property you're right that's that's a very big part funny so so what do you feel what did you feel in on that day the feeling of becoming an american citizen is very very hmm i just felt like I passed a big exam and I achieved something. Uh, being able to elect the president of this country, uh, in my opinion, is very important just because you elect in president, not just of this country, but president of or um, decision maker for a lot of people in this world. So yeah. it's very responsible um, task. And so I felt like Finally, I have, um, you know, voice that I can register to vote. That's the main thing. Yes. Because uh, to be honest with you, I don't feel like um, some romanticism in it anymore. Somehow, you know, it's been such a long time. I felt um, like I'm here for some time now. Like I felt like I am in U.S. It's not, um, it's not just a stop. It's more of a destination. I felt like finally I can register to vote and I will be... Uh, heard um, as you know it's very foreign feeling for for people of my country and and your country too yeah i've never my phone my voice never counted yeah hold on is uh is massachusetts a swing state no exactly so it doesn't really matter because it's massachusetts i know i'm sorry i'm, I'm destroying the whole fun of it but i know that's what I, that's right. I feel living in california i'm like okay my voice matters but uh not really it matters. <laughs> you just ruined the whole thing for me. And what am I supposed to do? I'm sorry. Well, what we can do is we can uh, we can donate and we can um, canvas call. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm doing because I can't vote. So because I'm a, re a resident, I can participate in in the campaign. So my way of doing that is by donating and joining uh, the campaign remotely so that's what we can do 
So how does do your family feel about your journey? I left my home right after high school, so they kind of knew that I want to be traveling and like going somewhere, and um, they support me in every step. And at this point, you know, my father passed away several years ago. Um, I'm sorry. I'm helping. Thank you. I'm helping my mother with money, like just you know, straight up. I'm just sending her money so she can live and. That's um, it's huge for her, but it's also makes me feel like I'm finally doing something back. I'm paying some something back, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I don't have to do it, you know. And I'm on time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's huge. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I can help my nephew and my sister sometimes. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm this uh, humanitarian help, but it definitely is big help. Yeah, well, because and here's actually a good uh, way to talk about Belarus right now mm -hmm. I do want to hear your thoughts on what the situation is unprecedented things are happening there right now um, which is very interesting because some of the things are usual and some parts of it are absolutely not Lukashenko was in the country for 26 years I mean as a president for 26 years um, he was elected and I think um, lawfully, legitimately elected uh, in 1994 when I went to first grade. So if you can imagine, all my life I had him as president. I never was proud of my country because he was the president of it. And now I'm so proud of my country because it showed my people. And my people are the most inspiring thing in my life right now. I think they're inspiration for a lot of people and for a lot of struggle. And I'm just, uh, am extremely proud. Um, I'm proud of my people because a woman became a president. And I say a woman became a president because it's absolute, it's a fact. If we had a legitimate election, then she would be a president. So I call her my president. And I think it's extremely progressive and it's, uh, just so cool it is and she is so cool she is cool um again she is might be you know you know arguably not most qualified for the job but um she has a great team and that's what president is supposed to be it's a great team yeah and she seems like she knows how to be a team player she does there's a thing of enough is enough and that was absolutely enough and i am um saying that unprecedented things in uh, Belarus right now is that people are so fed up and they just said no. Finally, for real, they said no. Um, and it's not only young progressive people or people who are um, having some idea of utopian uh, idea of future. No, it's a um, intelligent, genuine people, middle class, a little more wealthy, demographics too people who usually in a in a belarusian reality had more or less a comfortable life and didn't have to worry much they are risking a lot but they're going out there just to stand and show that they are there that they're want to be listened to um so the amount of people and this reaction is unprecedented but what also is unprecedented is the reaction from the government. Um, yes, people were killed before by this regime and sentenced and silenced a lot. But 
oh, the amount of torture that happened in those jails. Um, you know, when we say that we destroy Hitler and, and I'm, um, don't want to, um, compare Lukashenko to Hitler or compare any kind of, um, dictator one to each other, because even though it's a dictatorship, they're all are different and specifics and demographics of every country is different. We can't just say it's all the same, but when we destroy Hitler, the world said, and we freed countries and all Jews from concentration camps. We said, we will do everything for it not to happen again, but this is happening and it's happening. I'm pretty sure in a lot of countries in this world still, but we see and we saw what's going on. There is absolute sea of evidence good enough to sue them all and bring them to justice. The whole world saw what was going on in those detention centers and jails and buses and on the streets and in people's homes. It's all on camera. Uh, people will not go back. They will finally uh, bring it to the end. I don't know how, but they got to bring it to the end. They're not going to go back to normal. I'm honestly, I don't think they will. You can win them anymore. That's it. They're, they're going to they're gonna crush it. They're crushing it already. And they're going to crush it. I am so for us. I love to hear your optimism. I can see how emotional it is for you. And I'm there with you. And I know that a lot of people all over the world are. And seeing that love and seeing such beautiful, peaceful expression of desire to just build a better future is very important and inspirational. And I think it is really important for American audience, and I don't know how many Americans are listening to this, to, to see how people can be, because I, I really get annoyed with people not having time to vote mm -hmm. in the states <laughs> and we com keep coming back to the to the election uh theme is that it's such a privilege to be able to vote and if people in belarus after being oppressed for 26 years and 70 years before that if they can be not cynical and if they can believe that their vote matters mm -hmm. then americans definitely have to see it we are heading sort of similar way in this country here and i'm saying we because i'm a citizen of this country sasha okay <laughs> yes yes you are and yes we and yes i completely agree with you that america is headed a very dangerous direction and i i do remember when putin got into power in russia uh and that breath of freedom that russia got in the 90s was stolen and uh i remember how gradually but swiftly things changed mm -hmm. and fortunately the hope is that american democracy is uh is stronger i think and i hope that american democracy will stand let's hope so on that note <laughs> there is one thing that we didn't talk about yeah is your romantic profession Oh, my romantic profession. What do you want to know about that? Ask me. So how did you, how did you get into that racket? <laughs> so uh, when I returned to 
Bromstone from New York. Um, I was doing um, landscaping and working in a restaurant, and I met a person who was um, uh, scuba diving for lobsters here. Uh, he's like an old timer from Provincetown with a very um, like old family from here, uh, and a person uh, one of a kind, the most eccentric person I've met in my life, definitely. Um, person still doesn't have a cell phone. I got so excited, and um, I don't know why, because I am from Belarus, which is landlocked country. Yes, my father was a fisherman. He loved going fishing, but it wasn't his profession in any way. You know, he was just another romantic wanting to be on the water. And, um, but I got so excited and immediately asked, basically a stranger then, asked him to go on a boat with him and help them. He said, all right. And um, his name is Paul Tasha. Uh, so Paul took me, and that's how I started going fishing, like with him, going down in the really dangerous waters here. You know, they're like uh, not like beautiful diving. It's dark. It's uh, uh, like I mean, dark. It's very murky, and yeah, and not very much light to get through. But it's not deep. It's not so deep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it has there are amazingly strong currents here on the Cape. And the deep water uh, is very close to shore, so you get this uh, pretty good scope of what actual ocean bottom is. Not the beach, but um, being out there, being down below and seeing the sand just going down into a base, into darkness, and nothing is you can see. And nothing you can do with the current, which actually sometimes drags you down there. Mm. And... I didn't know that that happens. Sometimes, sometimes it pushes you up too with upwells. Um, and getting through thermoclines of ice cold water and seeing a bunch of creatures down there was fascinating. But also, I realized that it's a really good and cool way of making money. Kind of badass too. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so I got excited and I really thought I might want to get into it more on a more like professional level. Um, mm-hmm. And But I realized that to get a license is, you know, you can obtain a new license. You only can uh, buy it from somebody who had it before. Um, they will cost a lot of money and it's a lot of like poor immigrant that I was back then. It was a lot of uh, capital to put in to start something like that. Also... Uh, it's very dangerous. So I was going on every possible day I was free. I was going with him fishing and people started noticing me on the pier, you know. Who is that kid who just is going with Paul, who was notoriously, you know, crazy, badass, all-time fisherman, you know. Uh, he must know what he's doing or, or he's just crazy, you know. <laughs> so a friend of a friend once asked me to go with them on the lobster boat and help them except they are doing um, trap fishing um, it's a little well it's a different operation it's a um, big um, numbers and um, way more work they asked me to go it was um, the end of january and i went in the cold waters uh spent 16 hours on the boat pulling traps stacking them tying them down untying the knots putting the bait off just being like dirty and crazy tired but so happy and they were looking at me with the eyes like you are insane um but i guess that's the only way you can do this job you kind of like really have to like it or you just need money i don't know right um yeah 
that was August 2016. So that was four years ago when I started working for that person on the lobster boat. Then in the winter, we started going for sea urchin and scallops. So I started doing that with the guy and now um, I'm being a captain on one of his boats and I take uh, that boat fishing and fish with him too. So you're a captain? Yeah, just got my license re recently, so. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's such a unique uh, thing to do. Like most people, when they think about going to America, mm -hmm. uh, very few people think about becoming a fisherman, I'm sure. I don't know how many, I mean, I'm sure people end up working on boats. Mm-hmm. But I think it's such a such a unique place to to end up. I think so too. And uh, to be honest with you, um, there's a lot goes into it in terms for me. Uh, it's Provincetown where I live. Uh, it's the town was it's it, it's been built on fishing. Uh, it's um, old. It's historic. Uh, first of all, the oldest art community of this country. Uh, you know, working together with just simple fishing families um, and being so open-minded and welcome with, uh, you know, all kinds of people, all kinds of religion, um, people who practice any kind of religion, people who whose sexuality is even unknown even for them yet. You know, the level of tolerance was just such a beautiful place. And now I'm part of this town. That's how I look at it sometimes. I really like it. Um, also, it is badass. Um, I met um, my girlfriend and she also thinks that it's badass, I think. <laughs> um, Looks like it. What's the best thing about being a fisherman? There is a lot of not best things about being a fisherman, but I think best thing is uh, just being free. It's, um, you know, and even though it's, I'm over romanticizing it for you and your listeners. That's totally fine. Being able to get a boat and go out there and see the world as something beautiful and um, given and take care of it. That's a real freedom, you know, go out there and try to <laughs> make a living. Um, so I don't know, for me, it's, that's what it is. It's, um, being able to see a sunrise, moonset, sunset, moonrise in one trip, being able to see whales feeding just like next to your boat, because that's where they always do it and done it for thousands of years. Wow. Um, being able to feed yourself and closed ones with the delicious food product that is natural for us you know if we live here that's what we have to eat you know we can't transport belarusian kielbasa here just because you know that's that's what i want it's what you know makes sense we should eat what makes sense so the best thing is being active and being next to nature i love it even though you're covered in engine oil and diesel fuel most of the time so i don't know that also i think well, on that note, I do think that we covered a lot. I don't know if we covered it all. I really appreciate that uh, you are interested in um, so helpful to the cause. Thank you so much again. Thank you. You're cool. <laughs> You're cool too. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for today. I hope it was interesting. Let me know what you think. Subscribe, follow, share, comment, repost. Seriously, tell a friend. 
Tell a friend. Do you talk to your friends? Tune in on Thursday for this special episode. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Love you all. Peace.